I understand that Brian Fisher did an excellent job of treating a very difficult and delicate uh, subject last uh, last week. Uh, that's a hard act to follow. He, we, we have now designated him as our resident in-house sexpert. So uh, if you have counseling you want done in that area, uh, Brian is the man to see. There are a number of approaches I suppose we could uh, we could take to a Mother's Day message. One would be to praise uh, motherhood, and certainly that's appropriate. Uh, the scriptures do that for us. In Proverbs 31, the husband and children of the virtuous woman praise her and uh, rise up and call her blessed. Carolyn said that our family has always had an incomplete uh, understanding of that passage. We just rise up and call her. <laughs> and I suppose uh, in a very real sense, uh, wives are always on call, and we sometimes forget to uh, call them blessed and express appreciation uh, for them. Mothering is a tough job, believe me. And uh, we men uh, appreciate the mothers of our children and need to express uh, that appreciation. I find, however, that appreciation is is not enough. It doesn't uh, stick to the ribs very well. There has to be something more. And that something more is what we as fathers of our children uh, provide, the kind of practical help that we give to them that help them uh, fulfill their, their uh, mothering chores. And it's that sort of practical help that I'd like to give this morning. I'm going to speak not to mothers, but to the fathers of your, uh, of your children. Uh, you mothers can stay if you want. Uh, but uh, my primary concern is to speak to the men in your household, the fathers of your children, and perhaps give you some, uh, some uh, very practical help in fulfilling your responsibilities. Will you turn with me to Genesis 3? Genesis 3. Uh, Theologians uh, describe the fall of man as a fall down, and by that they mean man lost his dignity. And that's precisely what happened when we uh, fell. We began to do very, very foolish things. We, uh, We became fools. The uh, fall affected the way we relate to ourselves and, and to our environment. And this, uh, this chapter, Genesis 3, explains for us the uh, human tomfoolery that we have to put up with our, within our homes. That, this passage explains why uh, men, your wives, sometimes do things that distress you. And this also explains, women, why your husband is such a dolt. I uh, suppose it's a surprise to discover that we've married a fallen woman or a fallen man, but the Bible is very brutal in its uh, treatment of this of this subject. Uh, there's no question about the fact that we're married to a fallen person. Carolyn didn't believe that for a while while we were going together. I kept a lot of things hidden from her, but uh, she's well uh, aware of the fact now that I'm a imperfect uh, man. The, uh, the reason why the fall occurred, according to the book of Genesis, is that man uh, departed from God. When we take leave of God, we, we really do begin to take leave of our senses. We begin to do very, very 
uh, foolish things. That's why I'm convinced that if we want to make the uh, make motherhood enjoyable rather than something to be merely endured for our uh, for the mothers in our family, we must become God-fearing men. I've said this over and over again over the last few weeks because I've been so impressed, both in my own personal life and in the counseling that I've done with others, that uh, the the foundation for everything is an ongoing uh, worship and love for God. I think that expression, God-fearing man, is apt. It's the one used in the Old Testament to describe worship. Uh, by fear, the authors don't mean a craven fear, but rather a, a, a respect, an appreciation, a love, and a worship of God. Unless we have made room in our lives for God, unless Jesus Christ is Lord and has the run of our lives, we, we really do make a lot of trouble for ourselves and, and for our wives and the mothers of our children. That's why I keep saying over and over again that, that we men have to accept responsibility for our own spiritual lives and begin to grow. Now, let me make what I hope is a practical suggestion this morning on becoming a God-fearing man, because uh, you, could, you could raise the question, how, how do you do that? Do I find a guru and, and learn how to meditate? Do I buy a prayer wheel? Uh, what do I do to become a God-fearing man? Let me make a, a suggestion. Uh, it, it begins tonight. Before you go to bed tonight, set your alarm for 30 minutes uh, early. In other words, get up 30 minutes earlier than you, than you normally get up. Uh, your excuse, I'm sure, is mine. I'm not a morning person. I have to jumpstart my brain at that time of the morning. That's, you know... That's, hard to get up. But, I, you know, I really find that that's an excuse. That's not a reason. That's a cop-out. If you're going fishing or hunting, you can get up 30 minutes earlier or an hour earlier. You'll roll out of the sack. It's not that difficult. It, it's a question of priorities, frankly. If you have to change jobs and you have to go to work a half hour earlier, you will get up. And it won't kill you. Believe it or not, it won't. You can do without 30 minutes of sleep, 30 minutes less of sleep. When, when you get up, uh, stagger into the kitchen and uh, do whatever it is you do to get awake. They tell me Paul Newman dunks his head in ice water. Uh, that might be one way to get started. Once you're awake, get, get your Bible out. Surely you have at least one Bible somewhere around the house, preferably a, uh, an updated translation. My preference now is the New International, but... Any of the modern translations will do. Put the Bible down on the kitchen table. Don't sit in an easy chair. You'll probably go back to sleep. Put the, kitchen, put the Bible down on the kitchen chair and read it. Now, let me suggest a place to begin and a procedure to follow. And, I, and I'm indebted to uh, John Stott for this idea. I picked it up years ago, and I found it very helpful. Read in four different places in the Bible each morning. Read the first page of Genesis. Start where the Bible starts with Genesis and read the first page. Not the first chapter, just the first page. Then turn on a few books to uh, the book of Ezra. 
which is down a ways about 14 or 15 books later. Not Exodus, they may sound somewhat alike, but Ezra. That's halfway through the Old Testament. So you read one page in Genesis and one page in Ezra. Then read one page in Matthew. Start with Matthew 1, that's where the New Testament begins. One page in Matthew and one page in the book of Acts, which is halfway through the New Testament. So you're reading Genesis, Ezra, Matthew, and Acts. Now, if you follow that regimen for the next uh, year, you will read through the Old Testament once, and you will read through the New Testament twice. It doesn't make any difference whether you're a Christian or not. Some of you men I know who who are coming, who are investigating the Christian faith, you have not yet committed your lives to Christ, you're just not sure what you want to, that you want to go that direction. I encourage you to do the same thing. Just begin to read the Bible. Uh, the Bible has what someone has called a super-apologetic. It, it, it defends itself. It has a way of convincing you as you read. So just sit down and, and start to read. And uh, as you read, you'll discover certain things about God, who he is and what he does, and, and your heart begins to express appreciation for him. It's just very natural. That's what worship is, simply expressing thanks for who God is. And then as you read, you'll discover that there are certain things that you need to do in order to align your, your, your life with God. Now, there are foolish things that we do. If indeed we are truly fools, then Scripture has a way of showing us what's wise. And we need to begin to align our lives with what's true. Now, if you are Christians, Scripture tells us that when Christ died on the cross, he really did set our wills free. We can choose righteousness. We won't always do it. But we can choose righteousness. So choose to do what God says we must do as a man. Uh, James says that reading the Bible is like uh, washing up for dinner. You, you, you go into the bathroom and you look in the mirror. And you notice you've got a smudge on your nose. Well, the thing to do is not yawn and walk away, but to wipe the, the, the smudge off. Wash your face. That's what Scripture does. As you read the Bible... It begins to show us areas where our lives are dirty and where we don't reflect the truth found in in Scripture. And we need to make some changes as a result. Now, if uh, depending on how fast you read, you'll finish that process in about 10 or 15 minutes. It doesn't take long to read four pages in the Bible. Then you have 15 minutes left. What are you going to do with that? Pray. Prayer is simply communicating with God. Jesus said uh, that we ought to call our Heavenly Father, Father, and ask him for something. Now, don't ask him for a Mercedes uh, SL450. That's not appropriate. Ask him for character change. Ask him to make you like the truth that you're reading in Scripture. It's prayer that translates truth into life. And then pray for your family. Pray that God will begin to change the character of others. You know, it's so much better to move people through God than try to move them directly. There are things that our children are doing. There are things that our mates are doing that trouble us. Well, we can ask God to change them in his own time and in his own way. Pray for the problems that you see arising in your children's lives, those sorts of things. And what will happen is that your wife will begin to trust you more because you will become more trustworthy. See, our wives have us pegged. They know we're fools. They know that we're inclined to do things to our children that are 
that are destructive and disruptive. Men do expose their children to unwholesome influences. They do occasionally take them to dirty movies and and their attitudes sometimes are dead wrong. And the mothers of our children know that. They're not fools. That's why they get uneasy. But if we become wise men, if we become God-fearing men, then it sets them free from that concern because they can trust us, because we're worthy of trust. There is this line of authority established in Scripture. And we as men are not free to do as we please and run amok and impose our will on our families. We, as Paul puts it, we are free. But don't use your freedom to uh, uh, indulge the flesh. Rather, use your freedom to serve and to lead after, after Christ's example. So we're subject to him. And then we can give responsible, wise leadership to our family. Now, uh, let's uh, look at uh, Genesis 3. And I want to look just at verse 16. So I said all of this is backdrop to the fall. The fall uh, Genesis 3 simply explains uh, why we're such fools. We are a fallen race. And the consequences of that fall are given in, in Genesis 3 to the woman. God said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Uh, this is preceded by the consequences of the fall, a statement of the consequences of the fall for the serpent, back in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you're cursed above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. That's an ancient idiom, Near Eastern idiom, for uh, frustration. You would crawl in the dust. He's like the, uh, the villain in a Western melodrama whom the hero defeats in the end and he skulks off, saying, curses foiled again. That's, that's Satan's doom. He's always being frustrated and thwarted. And uh, finally, in verse 15, we're told he will bite the dust. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, that is the offspring of the woman, or pardon me, the offspring of the serpent, and hers, her offspring. He, the he refers to her offspring, will crush your head. You will bruise, literally, his heel. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. It's a picture of someone stamping on the head of a serpent, dealing a lethal blow to the, uh, to the snake, but in so doing, uh, injuring himself. A mortal blow, a lethal blow is struck on the serpent, but he inflicts terrible pain upon himself. This is uh, uh, what the theologians refer to as the proto-evangel, the first statement of the gospel. Here in this dark scene, when everything is falling down around Adam and Eve's Ears. Everything looks bleak. Uh, God promises that the seed of the woman, some man who someday will be born, will, will deal out a, a lethal blow to the serpent and set them free. But in so doing, he'll cause great pain to himself. It's a, it's a foreshadowing of the, uh, of the cross, an intimation of the coming Redeemer. As C.S. Lewis says, there's now a rumor of hope, though there is pain and frustration in the world, there, there is this, this idea that someday God is going to set everything right. But in the meantime, uh, Moses tells us, God says to the woman, I will increase your pain in childbearing, and with pain you will give birth uh, to children. Actually, the pain is twofold. There's the pain of raising children, and there's the pain of living with your husband. We'll just talk about the former 
Uh, <laughs> the former here. I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. Uh, I don't really think that uh, that the author is referring to the pain of childbirth, though that's unquestionably uh, uh, involves a great deal of pain, they, they tell me. Uh, pain, I think, was in the world before the fall. Uh, pain is an, is an early warning system. It's essential for the preservation of the race. It's multiplied pain, pain to the nth degree that he's describing here, and it's not pain of childbearing. It's the pain of child-rearing that he has in mind. Because you mothers bring into the world little fallen creatures. They're little chips off the block. They're just like their father, and ultimately like their father Adam. And that produces an enormous amount of pain. Any mother will tell you that. We all think that our children are going to be special. They're not going to be blighted and marred by sin. Uh, they're going to be the solution to the problem that faces the, that the human race struggles with, and they just end up being a part of the part of the problem. Uh, as a matter of fact, in chapter four, verse one, we're told that Adam lay with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she got all excited, like any other mother. She thought this was going to be the deliverer, the redeemer. And she says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Actually, the Hebrew phrase reads, I have brought forth, the, the verb brought forth is the Hebrew word kayan, which is the name Cain, comes from that verb. I have kayaned, I have caned, I have brought forth, I have acquired, literally, a man, and then you have the sign of the direct object, and then the word for, for God, Yahweh. I have gotten a man, dot, 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 i.e., Yahweh. And a lot of the, of the rabbis translate it that way. Eve thought that she had brought birth, uh, brought forth the God-man who had set everything right. And, of course, you know that wasn't so. He wasn't the solution. He, he didn't bring life. He took life. He killed his own brother. So she experienced immediately the pain of bringing into the, child, into the world a fallen child. That's a heavy burden. I have a friend, Jack Arnold, that I went to seminary with, and, and uh, Jack and Carol had one child every year that they were there. They ended up with four, and Carol and I didn't have any. I always accused Jack of trying to fulfill the mandate to replenish the earth all by himself. And I didn't know how to act around kids. And When he had his last uh, little boy, I went over to see him, and I, I didn't know quite what to say. I probably said something inane, like that's a cute little, little tyke or something, and and he picked that little boy up, and he looked at him, and he said, Nah, he said, he's just a little son of Adam. And I thought, that's a terrible thing to say about a kid. But I've had three. <laughs> and I agree. They're all just little sons of Adam. Every one of them. And they, they create an awful lot of pain. Now, here's where I, I think we men need your practical help. Because it is our responsibility, I fully believe to help relieve our wives of that enormous burden. We, uh, we fathers need to wise up. The, the interesting thing is that in the fall, the morality of the human race went topsy-turvy. Everything was turned upside down. And the great irony is the woman who does not have the ultimate responsibility for raising children she has responsibility, but not the ultimate responsibility. 
feels that responsibility most keenly. And the man who has the ultimate responsibility feels it least keenly. Who is it that uh, goes to the school to talk to the counselor when Johnny can't read or won't submit to authority? Oh, it's not bad. Who is it that expresses concern over and over again for the children? It's mom. We dad don't feel that burden as keenly, but the mothers of our of our children do. They know that children are wayward, and they are right. Proverbs says that uh, children don't come into the world neutral. They already have a proclivity towards sin. They're wayward. They'll, they'll destroy their lives. In fact, the Bible says, uh, if they're not trained, uh, the Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of, of a child. It's locked into the genetic structure. They're, they're fools. There are four different Hebrew words that are used for fool in the book of Proverbs, and that particular one means naive. They're untutored. They're, un- they're ill-equipped for life. They don't know how to make their way through life without destroying themselves. Proverbs says they need wisdom, skill at living life. They need discernment. They need instruction. They need discipline to quell their their waywardness. And and they need what what Proverbs calls steering, the capacity to to sail their ship through life without cracking up on hidden reefs or rocks. and, and, And they get that from their father and mother, and predominantly from their father. The book of Proverbs is addressed to fathers and gives instruction on how to how to train children. Mother, have a part. Listen, son, to the instruction of your father. Listen to the Torah, the teaching of your, of your mother. But the ultimate responsibility, the bulk of revelation concerning the discipline and training of children is, is given to us. That's our job. Not solely, but nevertheless, the, the ultimate responsibility is, is ours. Now, I want to make uh, two suggestions and then a number of subtopics under the second suggestion. The first is that that it is imperative that we men get ourselves together spiritually, that we make Christ Lord, and that we begin to walk with him. That's our our salvation. Nothing, Nothing will do more to relieve the mother of your children of that feeling that it all depends upon her than for us to to get our, our act together spiritually and start walking with, with God. At least she doesn't have two sets of fools to be responsible for. There's a wise man in the house who can, who can take care of her and, and the children. And then secondly, we must take charge of our homes. We must accept the responsibility for our homes. Now, that doesn't mean we're to be overbearing and storm around and and demand that everyone do things uh, our way and run amok and, and, and impose our authority upon the family in, in some arbitrary way. No, we're, as I've said over and over again, we're to, to love our families, our wives and children, and, and, and be gentle men and lead them with, uh, with love and with, with uh, a willingness to serve. Nevertheless, we must take charge. Four Areas, I think, in which we must take charge. First, we must accept the spiritual responsibility for our children. We must. 
That's one we tend to delegate to our wives. I've heard men say over and over again, well, my wife is a spiritual one in our family, and she does all the teaching. And often what that covers up is a feeling of inadequacy. I mean, I, you know, I, how can I teach my children anything? And the reason we can't is because we're operating out of a spiritual vacuum. We don't know God. We don't know the Word. We don't have anything to say. But if we're filling our lives with God's truth, if we're setting aside that time in the morning and we're letting God speak to us and we're growing up to all things in Christ, we will have plenty of things to say. We're simply imparting the truth that, that's been imparted to us by the Spirit of God. That's why I say it all goes back to the, the foundational matter of building a relationship with God. Will you turn with me to Deuteronomy 6? Deuteronomy 6, 4. Uh, this is uh, the closest thing to a, a theology that you'll find in, in Judaism. This is uh, designated, uh, it's called the uh, Shema in, uh, uh, in Judaism today. Taken from the first uh, word here, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are, are to be upon your hearts. God's truth must first be a thing of the heart. That's where it begins. That's why we have to uh, acquaint ourselves with God's word and live, live in it. And then it must be a thing of the home. Verse 7, impress them, that is the commandments that are given to us. Impress them on your children. Impart the truth to them. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the way. In other words, uh, there will be formal times of instruction where you uh, teach them in some structured way, perhaps uh, when they're small, read to them from a Bible story book or from the Narnian, uh, Lewis's Narnian tales or from some other source. Or as they get older, you begin to teach them from the scriptures in a formal way, and then you teach them when you walk along the road, when you're fishing with your son or hunting with him or driving back and forth to soccer games or little league games. And when you lie down and when you get up, that is through the normal uh, uh, concourse of the day, you tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. That is, they must be a thing of, of the, uh, it must be in your life, a part of your lifestyle your attitudes and your actions. You tie them on your forehead so that they become, uh, they're in your mind and they're an attitude to be lived out and upon your hands so that your actions express uh, the thoughts that are in your mind. The Jews have taken a, an overly literal approach to this. The Orthodox Jews have, and as you know, they literally tie these scriptures on their hands and on their forehead and these leather phylacteries that they wear. You'll see them on Hasidic Jews and in New York City or, or in Israel. But that's not what the author has in mind. He's referring to the truth becoming a part of our life, being in our minds and on our hands. Because we, we, we teach so much by mere attitude and the way we approach your problems and the crises of, of our life. And then secondly, I would say, not only should we accept spiritual responsibility for our children, but we must accept responsibility for their discipline as well. This isn't something we can delegate to their mothers. Proverbs says, 
If you don't discipline your child, you hate him. (laughs) You're sending him out into life unprepared. He'll destroy himself. He'll blow his life away out there. You hate him if you don't discipline him. But if you love him, you'll be careful to instruct him. I've had so many men say to me, I, you know, it's really hard for me to discipline my child. I love him so much. No, no, no. That's not love. We love ourselves. That's why we don't take this responsibility uh, on. It's too much hassle. hurts too much. It literally does hurt us more than it hurts them. Proverbs says if we love them, we will discipline them after the pattern of, of our Lord. Now, he's not talking about heavy-handed discipline or the sort of anger that most men express when they... Their children just just bother them when they break into their privacy at night. It's not that sort of thing. It's it's discipline after the pattern of our Heavenly Father who spells out His will clearly, unequivocally, unambiguously. It's all laid out there so we know. God's not playing games with us. The truth is revealed. And then secondly, He reminds us over and over again of the truth. And then third, when we rebel... He, uh, there, there are consequences that are built in to our disobedience. But after the, the discipline, he puts those big loving arms around us and, and he forgives us. and he, There's no separation and we walk on in, in fellowship. That's, that's the way we equip and train children for life. And if we as fathers accept that responsibility, it takes such a load off of, off of their mothers. I think this is particularly true during the adolescent uh, years. been through this twice, working on the third time around. During those uh, critical years, it's very difficult for mothers to control uh, adolescent young men. They're beginning to express their freedom, and that's a good thing. No parent with any sense wants to make their children overly dependent upon them. They need to be set free, but they need to learn not to show disrespect, uh, to honor their mothers. And here's where I think we men need to, to step in. Third, I would say we need to take the pressure off of the, the emotional pressure off of the wives of our children. We ought to be the ones who go to the, to the school to talk to the counselor when our children are struggling. We need to work with them in their, in their homework. We need to talk to their principal. I, uh, to this day, I find it hard to talk to a principal. It evokes too many bad memories, but uh, <laughs> we need to do it. Take the pressure off of them. They feel it. Tremendous burden to get these children through school. And when we take a very light, superficial view of the whole thing, we just place the burden on them, make motherhood uh, uh, almost unendurable. And then finally, I would say we need to help them physically around the house. Uh, I want to read the first uh, couple of paragraphs of the column I wrote yesterday. Uh, This is uh, a form of name-dropping. I'm the only columnist I know, so... If you'll forgive me. And the reason I wrote this is because uh, it's so close to, to home. 5 p.m. has got to be the pits for most mothers. That's when the children rage and the little heathen begin to imagine vain things. And unfortunately, that's when dear old mom is in the kitchen preparing dinner. You know the scene. The smallest fry desperately in need of a change is clinging to one leg. While the, well, with the other moms trying to fend off another fry going for the orange juice container in the open refrigerator. Alas, too late, the juice goes on the floor of the kitchen as a wash in O.J. and cookie crumbs. 
The dogs start barking, mom starts whacking bottoms and threatening little children with murder most foul and unnatural. The kids run for their lives. Meanwhile, the phone rings. It's the school counselor and mom pinching the phone between her ear and shoulder while turning over the hamburger patties assures the counselor that Mrs. Wiggins can come back to school tomorrow. Never again will Tommy bring his pet roach to school. As the tension builds, everyone senses that something extraordinary is about to happen. The king is coming home. It's a terrific time. Mom has to round up the kids who by this time are scattered all over the neighborhood. After a great deal of shouting and shoving, the family gathers around the table. The king says, who wants to pray? Predictably, no one, uh, predictably, no one was, does. So mom undertakes the task to the background noise of someone munching on a french fry. After dinner, the king moves off to the throne room, settles down in front of TV, tunes in the 5 o'clock news, and tunes out the rest of the family. Since Dad is now the conversational equivalent of the Giza Sphinx, the kids toddle off to find Mom, who is, you guessed it, trying to put the kitchen back into order. The place looks like the garbage dump in Star Wars. The phone rings. Mom grabs it since Dad is catatonic. The paper boy arrives. The dog starts barking again. Mom staggers off to get the kids bathed and ready for bed. Finally, she gets them tucked in, but they want a drink. They want to go potty, which produces another round of drinks and another potty run. Finally, about 9 p.m., she lurches into the bedroom and leans against the wall. Meanwhile, back in the throne room, the king has been watching an old James Bond flick. For two hours, he has followed the moves of Agent 007. He thinks, hey, this guy is cool. He and I are a lot alike. (laughs) He's swift. I'm swift. I'm smooth like this guy. At 9 p.m., he too heads for the bedroom, sees his honey, winks, and says, Hey, how about tonight, huh? She mutters, How about what tonight? <laughs> it, it, it's funny because it hits home. You know, it's just, that's, unfortunately, that's what we do to our wives. I spend a whole day talking. And the last thing I want to do when I come home is talk. You know, when our children were small, Carolyn spent her whole day talking to a four-year-old or a five-year-old, and she was dying to talk. Worst thing we can do is uh, get behind the newspaper or turn on the television set and just tune out on the family. Our attitude seems to be, you know, we'll we'll provide the cash to keep the keep the home going. There'll be enough cash flow to to provide for the house. And I'll take care of the business, and you take care of the children in the home. And that sort of division of labor is a is just a crisis going someplace to happen. Mothers cannot live with that. We need to pitch in and help. Uh, we need to be there when we're there. You know, you can be home and not be home. I can come home and walk in the house and and physically be present. But mentally, be somewhere else. I'm just not available. Now, one one trick I've learned. I don't always do it consistently, but when I do it right, it it works. And then I've got a cutoff point here at an intersection on the way home, and I try to stop thinking about what I've been thinking about, so I don't walk in the house like Joe Biffelsticks with a big cloud over his head, and I start thinking about Carolyn and the kids and what they've been doing, so I can ask intelligent questions and I can tune in when I walk in the door. I'm not still back at the at the office. And then secondly, when we walk through the door, I think we need to be available. That's where we can set aside. That's what it means to serve. To set aside our own selfish interests 
I know what you want to do. I know what I want to do. I want to crash. Home is my refuge. And I want to go in the castle and pull up the drawbridge and and, uh, turn the sharks loose in the moat. And and, and I want to be left alone so I can can indulge myself. And that's precisely what it is. Paul says, uh, you have a lot of freedom, but don't use that freedom to indulge yourself. Use it to serve one another. And, it, and what it means to serve is to pitch in. Get in there in the kitchen and, and help her clean it up. Take the kids off her hands. Put them in the bathtub. Give them a bath. Get them out, dry them off, play with them. Uh, put them in bed at night. You take that responsibility. That's a great time to be with your kids. Their hearts are so mellow. You can sit on the side of the bed and read to them and talk to them and pray with them and relieve her of that of that enormous uh, responsibility. Somehow we divided uh, family responsibilities up into women's work and men's work, and that's total. That's a cultural thing. It's totally cultural. I've heard men say, "I'm not going to clean house, and wash dishes, and clean up the kitchen." That that's women's work. Well, where did we get that idea? As a matter of fact, in Second Kings, it describes God uh, speaking allegorically of Israel. It says, "I'm going to," or Judas says, "I'm going to turn you upside down." Like a man turns a dish upside down and wipes it out. In those days, they didn't use water to wash dishes because water was a very scarce commodity. They just took a rag washed, wiped it out. Men washed dishes in those days. God says, I'm, I'm like, a, like a man who's just washing dishes. What's going to happen to you? You need to pitch in and burden them spiritually and emotionally and, and physically. It takes grace. It takes his strength in his wisdom. But it's all available. Christ is not only in our homes, if we're Christians, he's in our hearts, and he's available to us for just this kind of of, uh, of uh, wisdom and servitude. Let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we turn from the, the scriptures to our own lives and recognize how far short we fall from the standard all of us we need your forgiveness which is always available to us we need your strength that's adequate for anything and again is there on on tap and ready to be used we we want to trust you and believe you for these matters we want we want to tune in to our families and and the relationship and begin to give ourselves to the mothers of our children in very practical meaningful ways Forgive us, Lord, of merely thinking of ourselves. Help us to be servants uh, and, and to follow your example as one who came not to be ministered unto, not to be served, but to serve. Thank you for the encouragement that comes from your word and from your indwelling presence. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.